Oh, a wise guy, eh? Indeed he is. We'll talk to Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 1st. It's show number three of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball, We'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst, columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at San Diego left-handed pitcher Robbie Erlin. Matt Beagle is back with the new HQ Alternative commentary, talking about the player pool for pitchers in sim drafts. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about the mistakes he made at the FSTA Experts Draft. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers in two weeks? Eh, illegal drug investigations probably in about four. We gotta talk some baseball. Sad news about another PED scandal, and we'll talk about that during the show. In the first inning, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League. And our old friend, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, Let's start off with uh, the market pulse. Matt Cederholm writes a weekly column at BaseballHQ.com looking at where players are being drafted and how that compares with their actual projected value at BaseballHQ.com. He started off this week by looking at catchers, and one name that really caught his eye, Milwaukee catcher Jonathan Lucroy. Uh, Yeah, Jonathan Lucroy is uh, is a guy that really caught Matt Cederholm's eye. You know, I really like these market pulse columns that uh, that Matt does because he, he manages to point out guys who are going lower in the draft than you think they should. And Jonathan Lucroy is a guy to watch. Uh, he, he could have really a full breakout year this year in Milwaukee. This is a guy that uh, has a, uh, a contact rate about uh, mid-80s, uh, a PX of around 100. If he can do that over 500 at-bats, he could be a, produce a really good profit in the upcoming season. Yeah, Nick, the question seems to be his health. If he does get those 500 at-bats or 480 at-bats, something like that, he could really ring up some results. But so far, he's had a little trouble staying on the field. Yeah, health has been an issue for Jonathan Lucroy. And, and so that's the thing that, at this point, I think has prevented a complete breakout. But, uh, you know, you've got to, the, the guy, uh, he's going to get a shot, and certainly a guy you want to pick up. But Matt says he's around in the ninth round of the draft. He's someone to go for. Absolutely. It sounds like smart advice. Uh, another catcher, Nick Hundley in San Diego, was featured in Brent Tomich's Facts and Flukes column. Yeah, you need to, we need to take a, take a look at Nick Hundley. Nick Hundley seemed to have put himself in a position last year that was just about gone. I mean, the guy hit hit uh, below the Mendoza line. He only hit 304 at-bats. Uh, and then uh, Yosemite Grandalong and did extremely well. So it looked like Nick Hundley had kind of written his ticket to the bench or out of town in San Diego. But then along came Grandal with a 50-game suspension for uh, for failing to dust, and suddenly uh, Nick Hundley is going to get a shot again. So the question is, what do you want to do about Nick Hundley? Well, here's a guy that uh, that good good power background, um, three state seasons with a PX above 120, 
uh, his power disappeared because of a dip in home run per fly. But you would think that that's going to come back. That's more likely a, uh, a statistical anomaly than it is a, a real problem for him. So um, his hit rate, of course, dropped a lot last year. Uh, was 36% in 2011, dropped to 20% last season. You expect that to bounce back. So here's a guy who could bounce back a bit. Not going to be a high BA hitter, but he certainly does have some power. And Grandel's name, besides getting onto the suspended list for P- uh, PEDs, also turned up on that customer list down in Miami with that whole uh, scandal that's starting to shape up. So Grandel's 50-game suspension might just be the beginning of his drug troubles. Yeah, it might, it might indeed, and so who knows how that's going to play out. So it's certainly a possibility that Nick Hundley will get a, uh, uh, get a real shot, uh, probably a, uh, in a timeshare at least to begin the season. A timeshare with John Baker, and we should be make people aware he did have that meniscus injury that pretty much finished him off in August of last year. So is there, there are some other red flags here despite the uh, catastrophic uh, performance, but maybe those two things are linked. Who knows? Uh, Steve Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com, our starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, he does terrific work, Nick, and uh, one of the th- – uh, he does terrific work, Nick, and – most recently, his geez, I'm I'm buggering this up. He does terrific work, Nick. And most recently, his columns have been looking at pitch movement for pitchers, a very important thing that we're just starting to get our heads around as far as how it affects pitcher performance. And one of the names that caught his eye was Matt Harvey, the starting pitcher in New York Mets. Yeah, you know, Steve looked at both horizontal movement and vertical movement, uh, and as you said, a very important thing to begin to look at. And and because uh, certainly, if the ball is moving. A lot either either horizontally or vertically, it's going to be a lot harder to hit. So, uh, Matt Harvey's changeup, according to Steve Grant, had about one of the highest levels of horizontal movement of any changeup in the game last season. Uh, and he uh, he racked up a lot of strikeouts on a fastball and a slider along with that changeup. So, Matt Harvey's very green. Uh, he certainly could uh, could struggle going into the year because of his greenness. But at age 23, here's a guy really to take a, take a good look at. He's not likely to uh, to match last season's 2.73 ERA, um, but the skills below that were pretty good, and we're looking at something certainly probably a below a four ERA uh, as a as a kind of a um, a top side perhaps for a guy like Matt Harvey. So someone worth drafting, especially in a keeper league, someone worth uh, getting on your roster. Yeah, last year his expected ERA was 3.44, which is about seven tenths of a run higher, but still well below that four threshold. And you know, if everything goes right, this guy does have the good the good skills: a dominance rate of 10.6 strikeouts per nine, a command ratio of 2.7 strikeouts for every walk. Those are pretty good numbers, and he kept the home runs down a .8 home runs per nine innings pitched, and a, that's based on a perfectly fair 10% home run to fly ball rate. All of the skills look pretty good. The only reason to be wary of this guy is that he's young, but that's not always a bad thing. No, very definitely. Not not always a bad thing. And uh, certainly uh, he, he has a, a good uh, a good half season of experience now behind him. And uh, the uh, the inexperience may begin to, to play out uh, early in the year, but certainly someone to, uh, worth, worth keeping on your roster. And finally, uh, Chris Medlin also made Steve's pitch movement column as well as the Fact and Flukes column. So Chris Medlin getting a lot of attention this week at BaseballHQ.com. You could argue Chris Medlin was the best pitcher in baseball in the second half of last year. And I guess the question is, is that going to drive his price up so high that nobody wants to pay it? And is he going to be worth it, Nick? Yeah, you could indeed. And you need to be – Chris Medlin's a guy that we have touted for a long time at Baseball HQ. And he finally got his chance, and he, he proved himself extremely well. So – the question becomes, you know, here's a guy with a 0.90 ERA over his last 100 innings pitched. I'm going to say that again, 0.90. So can he match that? Well, the answer is probably not. 
that's too much to expect any pitcher to do over the course of a course of a full season. But his XERA was 2.67, which I would take any time. Uh, so, you know, Chris Medlin's a guy that, uh, that the price may go way too high, and you don't want to pay certainly a uh, an ace plus price for him. But uh, if he if he drops down a little bit, uh, a guy worth looking at. And uh, as Stephen Nickran pointed out, this is a guy with some uh, with some real pitch movement. His uh, fastball showed good movement. His curveball showed good movement. His changeup had a lot of horizontal movement. Uh, this is really a uh, a guy with a top tier changeup, two very good pitches. In addition to that, a ninety mile an hour fastball. Um, you know, he, he's 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 like not likely to be the game's best pitcher again for an entire season. But some uh, around a three point ERA is certainly he, something he can do. Yeah, Chris Medlin was a nice find by BaseballHQ.com last year. They were, we, we advised everybody, stash him on your reserve list. When he came uh, active, we said, grab him if you can, and he certainly delivered. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. Thanks a lot, Patrick. And we'll talk to you again next week. Uh, Harold Nichols writes regularly at BaseballHQ.com and is our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move it on over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director and writer Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD, big week this week. Yeah, wasn't it? And uh, kind of a sad week for baseball. You'd think uh, finally we appreciate the fact that the PED scandal is more or less behind us, although I suspect that probably it's been going on all along and they just haven't been able to catch people. And now this Miami deal explodes in everybody's face. And, of course, uh, there's a very real possibility of some more suspensions and what have you. And the two biggest names that they have turned up on the list, besides uh, Melky Cabrera and some other guys who've already been caught, Alex Rodriguez is the first big and maybe the biggest name that we're ever going to hear about something like this. The, the word out of New York now, obviously, and I think you've heard the same thing I have, is that the Yankees are, are trying whatever they can to, uh, to either void or get out from under uh, A-Rod's contract via insurance reasons. Um, obviously, this P, the, the, the Ped scandal has something to do with it, but uh, you don't have to look too hard at his performance and the recent injuries to find out that that has something to do with it, too. Yeah, and that's what makes me suspicious about any time I hear somebody embroiled in one of these scandals and people say, well, that you know, the, the Yankees should be allowed to void his contract. You just know the union's going to have something to say about that, and R- Rodriguez's own lawyers are going to have something to say about that. And, Jock, it reminds me of a few years ago. Remember when uh, Gary Sheffield was caught through the Balco uh, investigation, and so was uh, Jason Giambi, and both of them at the time playing for the Yankees. And the Yankees rushed immediately to go and try to void Jason Giambi's contract, but not Sheffield's, even though they were basically identified doing pretty much exactly the same thing through the same investigative channels. And I asked rhetorically at the time, could this have anything to do with the fact that Sheffield hit 330 home runs and 120 RBIs and Giambi had a terrible year? Of course not. Yeah, there's plenty of hypocrisy to go around here. But uh, the interesting thing in the A-Rod situation, because now he's going to be out for a considerable period of time, I know that we're projecting his playing time, I think, at 20% right now, is who's going to play third base? And obviously the, the first name you, you look at is, is Kevin Euclid, and he's got some injury and some aging issues of his own. But another guy who I think is pretty interesting is Eduardo Nunez. What, what is it about Eduardo Nunez? When I think of Nunez, I think, you know, average kind of guy, not that great of a fielder, not that great of a hitter, kind of a utility guy, but good speed. 
I don't see a lot of upside there, but if you look at his contact rate, it's it's consistently around 90%. Uh, he did steal 22 bases back in 2011. And the other thing that counts in a lot of leagues is versatility. He's, he's probably going to qualify at three infield positions this year. And if you can run a little bit, uh, play some infield at scarce positions like second base and third base, and you can make a little contact, and particularly on a team like the Yankees, uh, if you can rack up the counting stats, you can be valuable. You can earn $11, $12, like he did back in 2011. Last year, of course, he was up and down mostly in the minors. He only had 89 big league at-bats, but stole 11 bases in that limited playing time. Boy, you know, if this guy even sneaks his way into 300, 350 at-bats, you could really see him threatening the 30 stolen base mark. But other than that, there's not going to be a lot there. He's not a, he's not a good average hitter. He's not particularly, well, he's no power to speak of at all. That's right. That's right. His his biggest problem is power. Anything he makes up, he, he chips in for you on the batting average level is going to be all contact and luck based. Now, Euclid is obviously going to be the starter at third and if when I look at him, I see a guy who had a 950 OPS from 2008 to 2010 for the Red Sox and was a very fine player. And last year that was down to about 771, and he's never really been a home run hitter, more a kind of a doubles gap type guy. Yeah, well, Euclid did have, to be fair, the misfortune of playing in uh, in Fenway Park, which turns a lot of home runs into. Um, into doubles and and frankly if you look back at some of those years he had a he had a pretty significant power index uh, between 2008 and, and 2010 he was at once he was stuck on 165 those three years um, last year however his power was down uh, his uh, his his injuries were up and this was he, he played in the cell half the year so uh, um, 19 home runs and 438 at bats isn't exactly um, uh, um, a, a, a home run hitter for the cell, and, and you wonder how he's going to do in, in Yankee Stadium, where left field is is a little more daunting than in Chicago. I was going to say, I mean, you can say um, in in Boston, Fenway Park turns a lot of home runs into wall ball singles and wall ball doubles, but uh, left field in, in Yankee Stadium is no picnic either for a right-handed power hitter, especially a power hitter like Euclid, who's not jacking them f- 470 feet. He's sneaking them over the fence if they're getting over at all. Yeah, he looks like the primary right now for third base until that first injury. So um, we're really looking at Euclid uh, and Nunez getting a lot of playing time over at, at third base in New York. And possibly a free agent acquisition or trade or something. The Yankees, of course, have that big wallet, so uh, you can never count them out as far as finding some alternative to what we already know. Uh, the other name that turned up in these PED discussions related to the Miami Clinic is one that we haven't really heard before in relation to these. Uh, Nelson Cruz, the outfielder in Texas, a pretty good banger in his own right. Uh, His name has popped up on the list of customers as well. Cruz is interesting for a lot of reasons to me because, uh, first off, he's he's pretty much the Ranger power source right now in the outfield. Uh, The Ranger outfield doesn't look like it's going to contribute much in the way of home runs. And last year, Cruz stayed healthy for the first time in, like, forever. He, he put up a, a record high major league at bats in 585. Um, but he didn't have the monster offensive year that a lot of fantasy owners thought he'd have if he did stay healthy. He, he hit pretty well. He hit 24 home runs and 90 RBIs. And now he's going to be 33 this year. He has this, um, this, this ped cloud hanging over his head. You've got to wonder how the Rangers are looking at him in the long term. I wonder how fantasy owners are looking at him in the short term. 
I'd be really worried pending what's going to happen down the road. If I was drafting early before there's any kind of hearings or the commissioner had weighed in, boy, I wouldn't be surprised to see Nelson Cruz drop four or five rounds on the on the fear that he's going to get some kind of 50-game suspension per the uh, CBA. And if that's the case, his value really takes a, a basically a one-third cut. The thing about Cruz, too, is that I think he's one of these guys that has the reputation of being a big power guy, but the numbers don't really back it up quite as much. He had 33 home runs a few years ago in 2009, and that's starting to look an awful lot like an outlier, don't you think, Jock? Because every other year is kind of the mid to high 20s. And like you said, he's not getting any younger. I think the reason that people were expecting more last year is he hit 33 home runs in four, 462 at-bats in 2009. And he hit 29 home runs in, in less than 500 at-bats in 2011. So you would think with almost 600 at-bats, he's going to hit 35 home runs. Well, it didn't happen. And you're absolutely right. A lot of fantasy owners are looking at him now in the short term and what he's going to do. And when you when you think about the type of evidence that's coming out of this Miami thing, uh, people like Jordan Schaefer and uh, Rick Ankeel were suspended for a lot less. They got suspend, suspended for, for, for shipment information, no, no testing involved. Right. And you can definitely see where MLB might, might hand a 50-game suspension to Cruz if they can uh, authenticate the information they have in, in this latest study. It certainly seems to heighten the chances for playing time of David Murphy, who's an outfielder out there. He's got platoon issues. I think we've talked about him in the past. But I'm curious if you think there's any chance that this helps the opening day roster possibilities for uh, the super infield prospect Jerickson Profar. Profar, I think they want to play every day. And and I think the, the real issue for the, for the Rangers right now is getting power into the lineup. I actually think the, the player that it really benefits is Mike Olt, who's who who played eight games in the outfield for Texas last year, and he is a right-handed hitting power source. Uh, in, in fact, we've, we've talked about how Olt's real value, at least trade-wise, in the real game and, uh, and fantasy-wise, is at third base. But if Cruz gets it suspended, my take is that Mike Olt is going to be the big beneficiary. I could see him definitely playing some left field in Texas. I was thinking maybe they move Kinsler out to the outfield, which opens up a slot for Profar. But uh, like you say, I think they see Profar as their shortstop of the future, maybe using Andrus as a trade chip when his salary demands get pretty severe and uh, then slide Jerickson Profar in there at shortstop and carry on uh, without a beat. Uh, Jock, uh, Greg Ambrosius has a regular free column about the NFBC at BaseballHQ.com, and this week he wrote about the uh, lessons from the uh, Fantasy Sports Trade Association draft, the experts draft that I talked about last week with Todd Zola. He he talked about, Greg did, uh, talked about who's being bid up, who's falling down relative to the two drafts. Josh Hamilton, 10 spots lower in the uh, experts draft than he is uh, averaging in the NFBC drafts today. Does that surprise you? No, it, it doesn't. When you think about it, moving from Texas, which is very friendly offensively, um, given the second-half slump that Hamilton had and some of the strange injuries, and the fact that he's never really hit that well in, in Angel Stadium, it doesn't surprise me at all. But but the one thing that's that's interesting to me is that he's falling so far. I mean, if you look at our uh, projections at Baseball HQ, we have him projected for a 260 batting average and and 26 home runs, which is about as bad a performance as we've seen, as we will have seen from Josh Hamilton in five years if it comes to pass. I did some math, Jock, about Josh Hamilton's home run rates. His career rate in the big leagues is 5.1 home runs per 100 plate appearances, which is not bad. 5.8 in Texas for his career, 
But in Anaheim at Angel Stadium, 3.0, which is in the lower third of his ballparks for home run performance, and his career average there is 260. So uh, sounds to me like it could be that the uh, the experts are are smarter than the NFBC players as far as Josh Hamilton is concerned, at least as far as we know right now. Yeah, it's possible. Now, to, to take the contrarian argument on that, let's let's also remind everybody that he was facing Angel pitching during all that time, and until last year, Angel's starting pitching was among the best in baseball, probably for most of the games that Hamilton was playing against the Angels. So there's that going into it into it as well. Um, let me also say, for the benefit of people who are tuning in and who don't know me, um, I am an Angel fan, and, and I have to admit, as an Angel fanboy, I'm going to have trouble rooting for Josh Hamilton against the Angels. I'm still used to him being a Ranger, and uh, my wife is still having the same issues. Well, I'm sure you'll get over it the first time he maybe hits three home runs in a game or something. I just don't know that this is a guy also who's not getting any younger. He's into his 30s and uh, has had injury problems, has had personal problems away from the field very well documented uh, one point i would like to make about hamilton pd and 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 one that i don't think fantasy players realize he was actually trying to quit chewing tobacco all during the season last year and you're talking about a guy that that has had a lot of problems with addictions um chewing tobacco is hard enough to quit and if you're trying to do it during the baseball year i can understand why it might have had a, a an effect on his second half performance that's something to take into account Jock, another big difference that was pointed out by Greg Ambrosius in his column was that Nick Markakis of the Orioles seems to be going two to three rounds higher where the experts were concerned than the average of the uh, NFBC players. Picked 68th in the in the experts. His average draft position is 145. Do you consider this Nick Markakis is an opportunity to buy, or is this a warning a warning signal for buyers? Interesting that his average draft position is 145. I'm going to agree with the experts here. I think that Markakis turned his career back up a notch here, and the reason that most drafters aren't seeing this is they're forgetting that he was injured. He he he, uh, he lost a, a couple of months to a Hammett bone injury. Um, it, when he was in the lineup, uh, he he played very well last year, better than he played in in the in the past two years. He's got a broad skill set. Uh, he just needs some help. Hitting at that number two spot, he's going to be terrific for batting average given the at-bats he's going to see. I'm bullish on Nick Markakis. He's not going to steal as many bases as he has in the past. He had been a double-digit guy a couple of times. I think those days are behind him, and he's never really been a big power guy either. He's, I don't know. I might lean towards the uh, towards the uh, NFBC drafters on this one because I, I know Nick Markakis is a reliable guy, but he's just reliably not that much. I, I don't know. I guess we'll agree to disagree on that. Finally, uh, Jock, Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column where he finds values similarly by comparing mock draft ADPs to projected value from BaseballHQ.com. He started this week with the catchers, and he identified one real big potential bargain in Salvador Perez in Kansas City, a catcher going in the ninth round, which seems pretty low for a guy who has 437 big league at-bats and a 311 batting average. Yeah, I was pretty stunned to see where uh, Perez was going. Um, I like him as, as much as you do, I think. Um, this is a guy who came up last year. He came from out of nowhere. He's a big kid. He wasn't hitting the ball in the air a lot, and he wasn't generating a lot of power. But when I saw him play, I thought this was a guy who could who could generate some power down the road. I mean, he's only 23, um, and that's what happened last year. He actually hit 11 home runs in the 289 at bats that he came, that he played with Kansas City after he came back from an injury. 
And now in winter ball, he's really killing it. He's he's hit nine home runs in 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 about seventy five at bats. He's a terrific contact hitter, and he and he hits lots of line drives. His power is beginning to show up in the expected power index and uh, our home run per per fly ball growth. Big guy, a uh, good defender. I really like Salvador Perez. I do too, and he hits the ball hard all the time. Yes, absolutely. Every time I see him, he's making hard contact. His first year in the majors, he had a 29% line drive rate. Last year, it was 24%. This is a guy who makes good hard contact. And that's the kind of guy that you like, so keep your eye on Salvador Perez. Jock, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD, take it easy. Jock Thompson is Director of News Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, a team analyst for the site covering the three Southern California teams and Houston, and he writes a regular Dynasty format column at BaseballHQ.com as well. And if that wasn't keeping him busy enough, he's also our American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball comes up next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's my pleasure now to be joined by not only one of the most knowledgeable guys in fantasy baseball, but one of the nicest guys and the most fun to talk to from Wise Guy Baseball. It's Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be here, Patrick. First of all, before we get started, when is the Wise Guy Baseball Annual going to be available for people to either buy on the newsstand or directly from you? It's available now. I'm planning to mail on Monday, just polishing up a little editing, and we're ready to go. And how can people get a hold of the of the annual? Uh, they can go to wiseguybaseball.com. That will give them the uh, ordering information, make a phone call, send me an email, and uh, we'll get it done. All right, uh, let, let's start off by talking about the, the latest PED scandal in baseball. Uh, this time it's based on that doctor's office in Miami. I'm sure you've been reading about it. I wondered what was your take on the announcement of yet another drug scandal in baseball? Uh, the first thing that occurred to me is, is the testing really that porous? Now, I mentioned this in the, uh, in the Melky Cabrera comment, but I mean, it, it had seemed to me we'd been given the impression that uh, the testing was pretty good and enough people have been caught. So I wonder whether the story is true or not, or how true it is, or, as I say, is the is the testing so bad that we're right back where we were in 2004? Well, you know, Gene, they always say the cheaters are always ahead of the testers, and maybe that's uh, this might be evidence that that is indeed the case. And if so, maybe whatever adjustments we made to sort of remove steroids from the equation a couple of years ago, maybe we ought to rethink that a little bit and just say, look, there's going to be steroid effects in baseball for the foreseeable future, and that's just the way the game is. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an almost a no-win situation. Um, the, as you say, the, the, the cheaters are going to be ahead of the testers forever. What are we going to do in 20 years when people are biologically engineered to be great athletes? Um, to me, it's between the owners and the players how they want to do it, and it's a shame that it's ruined the continuity of uh, the history of baseball statistically. Um, but I don't really see how they can stop it. So, I mean, we can, it, and it's an unknowable pain in the neck for us. But we right. can, um, all we can do is deal with the information that we get and apply it the best that we can. And I know that's an inadequate answer, but what else can we do? 
Yeah, the, uh, the the big question that pops into my mind is how do you allow for guys who don't use the, the drugs for personal reasons or because they don't work for them or whatever, and uh, you know how do you calibrate the the users against the non-users when you're trying to do your player projections or make a make a bid in a fantasy draft? Yeah, um, and and that is really the unfairness of the whole thing. And I mean, early in you know in the early two thousands when this was breaking. It, because of that, I was thinking, well, they're all doing it. Because if they're not all doing it, then the ones who are not doing it are going to stand up and say, wait a minute, I'm not cheating, and it's not getting me anywhere because all these other guys are cheating and they're getting huge contracts. And the temptation would be almost irresistible if you were a quadruple-A hitter or a triple-A hitter, of which there were many who came up and and uh, set the world on fire for a little while. But, yeah, if the players don't want PEDs, I think that they can stop it. And I don't think anything less than that is, is going to stop it. Yeah, yeah I don't I mean, think the owners care. The owners just want fannies in the seats. Uh, but if the players who are not cheating, that's what it's going to take. They're going to have to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is what we want to do, and you know, we're, we're, we should be tested every two weeks or whatever it takes. I don't know. It, it, it's imponderable, really, Patrick. Yeah, it is, and it's kind of sad. So let's move away from that topic and on to baseball. And, Gene, in Wise Guy Baseball, this year's annual, you call 2013 the year of the prospect. And why do you say that? Because there are so many, so many grade-A prospects. And I think it's kind of interesting and strange coming off last year when we had Trout and, and Bryce Harper, mega-prospects, I'm not sure that any of the, uh, well, I know that nobody's going to do what Trout did, but I think there are several prospects who could do what Harper did, and I think that there are just so many of them that their impact this year is going to be greater than the impact of rookies has been in recent memory. You mentioned Mike Trout. All the experts say either a regression is inevitable for Mike Trout or that the best is yet to come and we've just scratched the surface. And you say in Wise Guy Baseball you violently agree with both sides. How can you do that? It was interesting at the first pitch symposium that um, there was a big discussion about it with a lot of people who know what they're talking about. And I violently agree with both sides in that I don't think he's going to do what he did last year. But I disagree with uh, Ron, who says that he, has, he there's a 90% chance, Ron said, that he's had his best season yet. I think the chance is more like 25 or 30%, but I guess we'll see. Um, remember, he didn't play a full season last year. If you, if you take him, if you give him 15 more games than he played last year and cut him by 10% across the board, his counting categories are eerily enough exactly the same as they would have been as 2012. So he's going to hit for a lower batting average, but he's still going to hit a good batting average, and he'll still be arguably the number one player um, if he hits 294 instead of 326. Right. Um, that's... He's the favorite to lead the major leagues in stolen bases. I don't think anybody's the heavy favorite, but he is the favorite. I think he is the heavy favorite to lead the major leagues in runs scored. And he's clearly a number one pick. Um, I agree with the that he is going to regress, and to expect what he did last year is not realistic. But I think that at some point in his career, what, I think that what has been done can be done. He's learning. He's not, we assume on PEDs, <laughs> um, 
and there's a natural learning curve. So I think it's very likely that he's going to have one or even two better seasons in his career. I don't think it's going to be this year, but I think he's definitely a first-round pick, arguably the first pick, and certainly should be one of the top three or four picks. For the long term, Gene, um, there's a lot of people who say that because Bryce Harper came to the big leagues with a two or two and a half year age advantage over Trout, that in the long run, Harper might be a better dynasty choice, or if you have some kind of long term contract format in your f- fantasy league, that Harper's a better choice than Trout. What say you? I think there's a good chance that that is true. Um, what impresses me about Harper is A, that he's a five category player right from the start. And B that he's he's a baseball player. He's not just a he's not just a talent. He's learning as he goes along. I think he's still a little raw, but he's um, he he has controlled aggression, which is a great way to play baseball. And yeah, I think the chances that he winds up with a better career than Trout are pretty good. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. You've always been a fan, Gene, and a proponent of salary cap games. And maybe for people who haven't heard you explain this before, what is the appeal of salary cap over other formats to you? Well, I like all the formats. But what I like about the salary cap games is that you can react to the reality of 2013. Um, if you, if your big hitter or big pitcher goes down on April in a rotisserie league, your season's basically over. Uh, not so with salary cap games. You just drop them and pick up somebody else. And it gives you a chance to react to to the new realities that every season presents. And you're playing against great competition. You have to have an all-star at every position, which is a mindset that people have to get used to with, um, in that format. But I think that um, overall, it's a, it's a great... The best players play it, I think, um, which I think is borne out by how well they've done in other formats. Um, such as Tout Wars and the NFBC. And, and I think that it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. And that's the most important thing. Uh, of course, the top salary cap games, CDM, and you've uh, actually given some props in this year's edition of Wise Guy Baseball to the Fantrax game. And you've set, uh, for people who are not familiar, or maybe st- people just starting out, you have a set of rules for these games, and I won't go through them all, but you do mention it's so important to focus on having top starting pitching and a lot of home runs. Why do you say that? Well, home runs are four-category events. Um, number one, that applies to all formats, of course. Um, in, in this game, you, cannot, um, you can't cheat on your pitching because nobody else will. You don't have to have the 12 most expensive pitchers, but you have to have pretty close to the 12 best pitchers in baseball. Um, you, can act, you use six or seven active at one time, but you can mix and match for two start weeks and home starts and and maximize the pitchers that you have. You should start out with the with basically what you regard as the tw- who you regard as the twelve best pitchers in baseball. Salary be damned, and um, as you go along, cheaper pitchers will emerge, and they're fine to pick up and to use, but they better be good. They better not be just pitchers who are on a three or four start hot streak. How well do your salary cap rules fit other fantasy formats? The focus on home runs, as you just said, makes a lot of sense in rotisserie and in points leagues. Uh, what about some of your other rules? How do they fit other fantasy formats, and or how uh, precisely are they salary cap specific? Well, another um, another big thing with me is the home park edge, and it's been true since the beginning of time in baseball, literally since the 19th century that the home team has had a 10% edge. And the reason for that is because players play 10% better at home. 
Um, now, obviously, there are ballpark factors that you know can interfere with this. But if you're aware of this, and I think it applies to all formats, um, most people nowadays do some form of streaming with their with their standard rotisserie formats, and the home start um, the home start edge is there and should be taken advantage of um, relentlessly, which is what I do, and especially with your back end pitchers. Um, it's always good to have a few extra ones and to use them for their home stores. Yeah, and you said especially for the back end because uh, I I think you and other people have also said that if you've got a Clayton Kershaw or a Verlander, you start them every week no matter where they're pitching and under what circumstances because they're just that good. Right, that's right. And they'll if you're good enough to beat to overcome that 10% edge, then obviously you're going to use them. But on the back end... You know, in the past, it was always a good idea to, and in all formats, to to roster a couple of Padres pitchers or Oakland A's pitchers in, in AL leagues, Mariners, and use them for their home starts. Take them out when they when they go to Texas. Take them out when they visit Yankee Stadium. But use them at home, and they have really uh, big splits sometimes. And the, you can integrate the, that theory with the skills of the pitchers. You know, keep a fly ball pitcher out of Yankee Stadium, but you want him in Oakland. You want him. In uh, in Seattle, because it's advantageous to be a fly ball pitcher in those places. Not so much in in Seattle anymore. Uh, Gene, you you mentioned uh, in talking about salary cap here on Baseball HQ Radio and in the Wise Guy Baseball Annual before that one of the big things about salary cap that you really enjoy is the competition is as good as it's going to get because all the top players want to get into these salary cap games and in a same sense, the National Fantasy Baseball Championship drafts have become that as well. It's a, it's a place for you to test your mettle against the very best, and you call it as much fun as maniacs can have. Why do you say that? It's just great walking into that room. I know people um, like to do it online, too, but to me there's nothing like walking into that room at the Bellagio with all those people there and listening to the names go through. It's, it's an exhilarating feeling. It's, it's opening day for us. It's it's the greatest day of the year. Um, it's just to know that these guys are the, as good as they are and that you're getting a chance to go up against them. To me, that's what it's all about. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. And, Gene, uh, we're going to come now to my favorite part of the annual, your player commentaries, which are very insightful but are also very entertaining and funny, and you go off on real interesting tangents. And I'm wondering, is it a conscious decision by you to be so irreverent about something that so many of these maniacs take seriously? Uh, I can't help it. A lot of things are funny, and so as I think of them, I write them down and hope that people like them. Oh, they're very funny. Uh, let's go to some of the players. Uh, Houston second baseman Jose Altuve, you say, has a nice skill floor for his batting average and room to grow and maybe be a nice get. Yeah, well, he, his batting average declined in the second half, in the second half but his skills increased. Uh, he struck out less, he walked more, he's got good speed, he's a ground ball hitter. That gives him a really nice batting average floor. So I don't think he's going to regress at all. I think he's, his... Uh, his chance of either staying the same or improving are much greater than his chance of regressing, and I think he makes a nice pick um, after six or seven second basemen are gone, particularly because after Cano really at second base, the next that next second tier, this question marks about all of them. Right. Um, so I think it makes a lot of sense for people to save a little money, save a little draft spot, uh, draft space, 
Altuve in the sixth or seventh or eighth round as, uh, as they allow you to. You say Cincinnati right-handed pitcher Homer Bailey might not deserve his reputation, a million-dollar arm, ten-cent head type of guy. Well, yeah, and the reason I say that is because he does the little things that the uh, the what crowd usually doesn't do. Um, he doesn't throw wild pitches. He doesn't hit batters. He's not easy to run on, and he feels his position. I mean, nobody's ever doubted his stuff, but... Um, you know, these days when people are using expected ERA and fielding independent pitching, um, little things like that can throw a, uh, a monkey wrench into those stats. And if you do all of those things in combination, you're going to be better than those numbers indicate. And so, yeah, I mean, he's got the disadvantage of pitching in Cincinnati, but these those four things added together, I think, negate that. And given his development curve, I think he's got a chance to be a really good pitcher this year and at worst will be a good pitcher this year. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that a couple of years ago. I did a research piece for BaseballHQ.com in which I said I asked myself the question, why is it that we don't count hit-by-pitch and wild pitches against a pitcher's control level? Our, our usual metric is walks per nine innings, but surely hitting a guy is no better than, than walking him and may even be worse because it indicates an inability to even find the plate plus the batter's box, and, uh, and of course, a, a wild pitch is only counted when you're allowing a runner to move up. Both of these events are harmful to ERA and whip, and it seems to make sense that if a guy does that a lot, that he should be downgraded, and if he doesn't do that a lot, like Homer Bailey, that he should get a, 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 an upgrade. Yeah, I agree with you. I read the piece and agreed with it completely. Also, um, they're true outcomes. You know, they're not major events in baseball in terms of quantity, but... You, uh, you know, a hit batsman or a wild pitch is just as much a true outcome as a home run allowed. You seem intrigued by San Francisco first baseman Brandon Belt. Yeah, I wish that I, he was playing full-time, which I don't think he's going to do because Posey's going to play first base so much. Um, the ballpark will hurt his, his power, uh, but I think he is a 300 hitter with extra base power, and the, the ballpark will not hurt him as far as doubles or triples are concerned. And I think he can steal 20 bases any time he wants to. I think he makes a nice back-end play, uh, especially if you need a little speed. You mentioned earlier that it's justifiable to take Mike Trout with the number one spot, but you say for you it's Ryan Braun because of five-category production. Yeah, I I think so. Um, um, When you're looking at the first pick, you want reliability, and few, if anybody, are more reliable than Braun. He offers one more category than Cabrera and Cano. Uh, I don't think that Trout has quite earned a that level of trust yet. I don't think Matt Kemp has earned that level of trust yet, and Josh Hamilton, we know, hasn't earned that trust yet. So, um, yeah, I think he is. I think that his 2012 vindicates um, his steroid story, at least if the testing isn't as porous as this new story may indicate that it is. Uh, but in any case, he's as consistent as they come at a really high level. He's durable. That's what you want in the first round. I know it's a cliche, but you, you know you can't win in the first round, but you can definitely lose in the first round. And to me, he's clearly the number one pick for this year. Interestingly, though, in your Ryan Braun comment, you also say that the number one hitter probably won't come out of the first round. Now, why do you say that, and who do you think it's likely to be? You know, history tells us that year after year, that guy is not going to come from the first round, or probably won't come from the first round, so... Two, three years ago, it was Carlos Gonzalez. Last year, it was Trout. Those guys were distant. Um, you know, it could be a guy like um, Anthony Rizzo. 
you know, could come out of nowhere. It could be Freddie Freeman, those the type of heavy hitting first baseman who haven't quite arrived yet. It could be Bryce Harper. It could be um it could be Ian Kinsler. I mean, he's not really a first rounder anymore, but he he's got uh, he's got batting average luck coming to him. Um, he's not really a two fifty hitter, in my opinion. It could be Mike Stanton, um, who probably is a first round, or at least the end of a first round. It could be could be Cespedes if he beats his ballpark in that one year. Um, these guys won't go in the in the first round, so. Just make sure that in the first round you get a guy who's going to be reliable for what you're drafting him for, four or five categories. I was surprised to see that you ranked Billy Butler fourth among first basemen behind Votto, Pujols, and Prince Fielder, and ahead of guys like Adrian Gonzalez and Mark Teixeira. That seems like a lot of love for a guy who hits a ton of ground balls. Well, he also hits a ton of line drives. Um, I do expect his home runs, I, I think his home runs are more likely to be less than 29, and closer to the 22 of, of the year before. However, he is a, a 300-plus hitter. Uh, he plays all his games. Uh, also, it's partly a function of the, of the other guys declining in value. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez's home runs have declined four years in a row, and he's playing in Los Angeles. Um, Teixeira has to hit into the shift, and he shows no inclination to go the other way and bounce base hits to left field. So I think that we have to we have to bank that he's a 260 hitter at best, his power's intact. But I think that that puts Butler ahead of uh, both of those guys. And in fact, I would nose him ahead of um, Edwin Encarnacion, although I think that's highly debatable. I could be wrong about that. But I, I, just on the reliability factor, um, I think Butler belongs up there. He's in the middle of a lineup. His production is going to be great. Um, it is a better lineup, too. Um, so, yeah, even if he does regress at home runs, I think he makes it up on batting average and production. You say this is the year to pounce on Carl Crawford. It's not that I think he's going to become a first-rounder again, although that is a possibility. Uh, but I think that he's just fallen so far in the public's favor. Let's not, you know, let's not forget what he uh, was even as recently as last year. You know, when he played last year, he, he did well. And... As long as he's healthy, I think that the public, with a bad taste in the public's mouth, this is the way to do it. You know, he hit 280. If you if you prorate him to 150 games, he hit 282 with 15, 24, and 111, 92. Now, I mean, the numbers could be a little skewed, but we're, you know, skew him back, and we're still talking about a fine baseball player. You mentioned that you, Darvish, in the latter part of last season, finally showed some signs of attacking hitters rather than nibbling, and that makes him uh, a more interesting guy to look at for 2013. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was really impressive at the end of last year. Now I don't know if this is true, and I don't want to stereotype anybody, but it seems to me that the Japanese pitchers have come over tend to nibble. They have a lot of pitches. They they like to play around the with the strike zone and get these marginal strikes, see if they can get the calls, maybe showing a little too much respect for the hitters. But I think that, and I, Darvish was doing that for most of the year, but in September, it seemed to me that he stopped doing that. He was throwing as fast, he throws really hard, and he's got great secondary stuff. He does have, of course, the ballpark disadvantage, you factor that in. But I think that um, not quite good enough to be uh, an ace pitcher in a mixed league, but definitely a very good number two pitcher. I think we're more likely to see better from him uh, than the same or worse this year. 
a lot of people are looking at Desmond Jennings to really bounce up and be a breakout player in 2013, but you argue that he might be taking what you called the B.J. Upton path to roto disappointment. Yeah, I liked him a lot last year, and I think that I was uh, a little over-enthusiastic. He's not going to do nothing. Uh, I don't think he's a foundation player. But like B.J. Upton, I mean, B.J. Upton is, is a road of disappointment, but he's not a guy who's done nothing. He'll always do something as long as we don't overrate him, as long as we don't expect too much. So I, I make the distinction between a, a foundation player and a building block player, and I think Jesmond will be, Jennings will be a, a good building block player as long as you don't expect too much from him and you have a foundation that, that he's adding to. You argue that Clayton Kershaw is the best bet among starting pitchers for 2013, even ahead of Justin Verlander and David Price. Yeah, I, I don't think he's really any better, but I think the fact that he pitches in the National League and in Dodger Stadium gives him an edge, and he's also a guy who makes all the starts. I mean, they're all three of them great pitchers, I think, and, and in real pitcher terms, I think the three of them are clearly in a class by themselves. But for this year... Given the circumstances, yes, I, I think Kershaw is the best bet. Speaking of David Price, uh, that you argue that contrary to what a lot of experts tell us, preventing line drives is a repeatable pitcher skill, and you think David Price has that skill? Yeah, I do, and I've, I've studied this twice, and I and I did the uh, I published the study this year in this year's Wise Guy Baseball. I went through the forecaster and I looked for pitchers who had below average line drive rates for five years in a row. And there are 36 of them. Um, that's a lot, and that, that, that's enough to, that's a convincing number. Um, some of them are relievers, but a lot of them are starters. I also, um, to be exact, I took pitchers who had only pitched for four years but had a below average line drive rate for all four of those years, and I threw them in too. But 36 is a lot of pitchers. I think it, it's a, a demonstrably repeatable skill. Um, I don't think it's, uh, the sole answer. I don't think that if you have a low line drive that rate that that makes you a good pitcher, but it is a skill, and it definitely means something. And if you look at the list of the the fourteen pitchers that I who were starters, all of them have um, piqued our interest at one time or another, and should continue to do so. At least you know we should have it in our minds. This guy can prevent line drives. In a similar vein, Gene, when we spoke last year on Baseball HQ Radio, you said a low home run per fly ball rate was a repeatable skill because some pitchers are better at inducing infield fly balls, which can't be home runs and should be counted differently than outfield fly balls. Your poster boy for that assertion was Jared Weaver, and in this year's Wise Guy Baseball, you say Jared Weaver is still not getting the respect he deserves from the fantasy world, and is that the reason? There still is a, a prejudice against fly ball pitchers. Um, and I think we can still benefit from it at the tables. An infield pop-up is, a, is an automatic out, and so he's going to have a, a lower home run to fly ball ratio. And I also think, as long as I'm here on, on HQ, I should also say that I, I'm um, agitating to go back to the old expected ERA formula because I think the new one discriminates against fly ball pitchers before the fact. Um, to give you an example, uh, last year, uh, Jared Weaver had basically the same XERA as Jake Westbrook. And I don't think anybody really thought that they were the same pitcher. And I think if a formula is telling you that, 
We should revisit the formula and at least not penalize them before the fact. Um, uh, one other point about that is if you're uh, is Oakland A's pitchers. An Oakland A's pitcher is always going to have a high infield fly percentage because of the enormous foul territory there. Balls that can be out there that would be in the stands and other places. So that's worthwhile. Any fly ball pitcher on the Oakland A's is worth an extra is worth bumping up an extra buck or two. When you think about infield fly balls, they're exactly the same as strikeouts in the impact on the game. If there's runners on base, nobody advances on an infield fly ball, just as they don't on a strikeout. And I wonder if there's some value to looking at at pitchers by adding together their strikeouts and their infield fly balls and considering them, instead of calling it a strikeouts per nine, call it an easy outs or a un- unproductive out per nine. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think it should also be extended to hitters. Because if a hitter strikes out a lot and hits a lot of infield pop-ups, he's basically, it's impossible for him to sustain a high batting average. Or to drive in runs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, his RBI rate should be lower than, than average. Even if he hits some home runs, I would think. And finally, in this part of the uh, of our discussion of wise guy baseball, you say Jerickson Profar of the Rangers is the guy to get excited about for 2013. First of all, what is that? Why do you say that? And second of all, do you think he's going to get some at bats this year enough to make him a valuable addition to a roster? Well, I think they're going to give him an opportunity. Of course, I don't really know, but um, I've seen this guy play, and he's. He's more than a talent. So many of the prospects that come up are are talents, but they're not really baseball players. They don't. They're not great fielders. There's holes in their in their game. I don't think there are any holes in this game, which I think is amazing in a guy who hasn't turned twenty yet. Um, he can do it all. I mean, I don't think he's going to hit for big power this year, but I think that if he's given the opportunity to play. He's going to do Starlin Castro or even a better version of Starlin Castro, and he's going to go, what, 150 or 200 players later and cost less than half as much. So I think he's a great gamble, and he'll get at least some at-bats this year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball, and we offered... Uh readers and subscribers on the Baseball HQ Facebook page and the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com, a chance to weigh in with questions for Gene. And Gene, from our Facebook page, Brian Clark wants to know about the risk-reward status of Jason Hayward. Big upside, big risk. Uh, I don't think he's got that much risk. I think there's a little residual injury risk. Um, I, I don't think that he's... He, I know that he's not as bad against lefties as his pure stat line looks because he did have extra base hits against them. He's elite against righties. He's going to bat somewhere three to five in the lineup, I think. So uh, uh, I think he's a really good play this year. I, I think the best is yet to come. Tom Mulhall asks from Facebook, some of the best shows are the ones with Gene McCaffrey on them, so a shout-out for you. Could you ask Gene, please, about some injury comebacks like Roy Halladay? As far as Halladay is concerned, I'm really concerned about the loss of velocity on his fastball and his cutter. I think a new holiday era has dawned until proven otherwise. I'm not saying that he can't bounce back big. He has that potential. He's got plenty of, he knows what he's doing. He's got great control. I don't think he's going to be a bad pitcher, but I think the days of the elite Roy Halliday are over um, and should be he should be put around uh, somewhere 30-35 in the starting pitcher ranks. Marlon Martinez asks, uh, what about Alex Rios and his new batting stance? 
Is it going to make him a new man, or is it the usual on-off, uh, every-other-year regression? Uh, how about the usual on-off um, regression? Um, I think you can only take Alex Rios if he's a gift, which he's not going to be this year. Um, when a player has has displayed this pattern, the on-again, off-again pattern, he's he's due for an off year. That could be wrong, but he's going to he's going so high that I think that there's much more loss potential than profit potential in him. Chris Metz wants to know who's your favorite CDM value play. Well, it might be Profar. Um, we'll have to see if he gets if he gets a chance to play. I wouldn't take wouldn't roster him until I know that he's a, a confirmed regular. Um, among the ultra cheapo players, I think Adam Eaton has a chance to be um, owned by everybody within a month or two. Uh, I like Machado at third base. I think he's got a broad base of skill. And one of the things that I've been that I like is when when a when a hitter can do a lot of things, he's more likely to do something. If he's if he's got power, speed, and batting average, it's a pretty good bet that one of them is going to develop, if not more than one of the things. And also, which is just as important, he's unlikely to do nothing for you. And that's really what you need to avoid. Even if you're wrong about a player, in in that time when he's active for you, you want him to do something just to not kill you, and, and a guy who can, can do everything is more likely to deliver something. Jeremy Gibbs wants to know, he's heard from everybody that second base is going to be shallow this year, which is certainly true. What's your opinion on the idea of position scarcity, and then what do you think of Dustin Pedroia and Ben Zobrist? I think the real position scarcity is in the outfield after the stars are gone. I think that Zobrist is I would bet on the low side of his categories this year because he's never been a great batting average hitter. He's getting only 32 years old. I don't know if people realize that. Um, he's going to be good, but I think that if you expect him to be on the low side of his categories, you're not going to get him because somebody else is going to get him first. Um, and, I, and I would be fine with that. Pedroia, um, I like the fact that he played hurt. I like the fact that he played pretty well when he was hurt. I think he's going to have a better year this year. I'm a little hesitant to take him in the second round. I like Kinsler a little bit better. That's a reversal for me um, because I think Kinsler has to uh, show he's played two full seasons in a row. I think that means something. It means he's not chronically injury prone. There were, you know, there there's injury risk in everybody really. But if a guy has played two years, two full seasons in a row, even after a fairly extensive injury history. I think that he deserves a, to be bumped up a little bit. John C. Gage wants to know about the Seattle Mariners. Uh, they, he wants to know who loses out in the first base DH at bats. Of course, as you know, Gene, they appear to have, what, 14 or 15 guys for three spots. And he wants to know if any of the Seattle young pitchers are going to earn a rotation spot this year. Well, I, I think that um, Ramirez will. Um, I don't know. The, um, the Japanese pitcher, um, I'm not very high on the Iwakuma guy because he, he was a, definitely a product of Safeco Field last year. And with the changes, I think the changes in Safeco Field, although you never really know until they play the games, according to the uh, Mariners assistant GM, there's going to be 30 or 40 more home runs there this year for both teams. And it's not a major impact. It's still going to be a pitcher's park, but less so. And uh, Iwakuma had a huge home road split last year, 
and I think that he's pretty likely to regress. Um, I'm not really sure about the other guys. The one guy I like on, on Seattle is uh, Nick Franklin. I think he makes a nice back-end play. I think he's going to get a chance to play this year. I think he's going to hit for uh, uh, at least a neutral batting average with moderate power, and that's um, it's going to be a play because he's going to be an end-gamer, and you should show some value there. Harold Body, and I'm guessing at that last name, wants to know about Austin Jackson. He says his numbers don't really look that great, so what's coming for him in the next two years or so? Well, I like the fact that he's um, hitting for more power. I don't think he's going to steal any more bases because Leland is not a running manager. Manager, The Tigers have been last in stolen base attempts the last two years in a row, um, so I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, He's always been a good line drive hitter, and in the bad year that he had two years ago was because his line drive rate fell off, but it was right back up there last year. His contact is still not good, but it's better than it was, and he's a little more willing to take a walk, makes him a better leadoff hitter. The guys coming up behind him are really good. I think he's absolutely rock-solid to score 100 runs. So as a building as a building block player, I think he's fine, and I think that the chances are pretty good that we haven't even seen his best yet. Still only 26. From the Baseball HQ a subscriber forums, Andrew07 wants to know, with sabermetrics now more in the mainstream, it's increasingly difficult to find pitching cheap. So how do you adjust? I think that there are still plenty of cheap pitchers. Um, if you go down the list um, of guys who are going to be taken later, uh, you know, Jonathan Neese, Derek Holland, I like Edwin Jackson this year, um, Capuano, I think Getweiler on Washington has a, the impression that he seems to give off is that he's a finesse pitcher, but he's, you know, he throws 92. He's not a, he's not a soft tosser. Um, I think Markham on the Mets is a is a pretty good pick. Um, Tillman on the Orioles very quietly um, came into his own at the end of last year. Um, no, I don't think there's any uh, lack of cheap pitching this year. Dubrant on the Red Sox striking out more than a uh, guy in inning. That's a nice place to start when you're speculating late. Um, AJ Griffin is not has no superstar potential, but he pitches for the A's. And he'll be effective. Um, Zach Wheeler on the Mets. Um, he'll get some starts this year. Uh, so if you want a more controversial pick, I'll, I'll uh, throw out James McDonald. Because I know they collapsed in the second half. But you don't do what he did in the first half by accident. Um, I don't think there's ever been a pitcher who's had an ERA, or excuse me, a whip under one for half a season who was not a good pitcher. He was massively unlucky in the second half, um, and he presents. And the public is scared off by that collapse. And I think he's going to be a nice back end play this year. You mentioned Ross Detweiler, Gene. Uh, last year, I looked at all the pitchers in Major League Baseball, and Detweiler led the league in getting deep into games, uh, innings pitched per start, which is very helpful on a wins perspective, especially if he's on a good team. And Washington, of course, is a good team, and they're getting better all the time. So Ross Detweiler's a guy I like, too. Uh, D. Leo Boyd from the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums wants to know your thoughts on Tim Lincecum for this year. Well, I want to stay away from him. Um, when a guy goes from being a $22 pitcher to a minus-value pitcher, at his age, I'm really skeptical. 
Um, he looked great in long relief in the postseason, but his velocity was down as a starter, and I he still you know get, gets that residual respect from the public, and I think that again there's more loss than profit potential there. I'm not saying that he can't bounce back, but I. It's not the kind of risk that I'm looking to take. And finally, one more Facebook page question. Nothing to do with baseball. It says, please ask Gene for more recommendations about music. The pillows are great. <laughs> and they are. <laughs> well, let's see. What am I listening to? Uh, actually, I've, I've been going back. I've been listening to a lot of um, a lot of classic blues music because I because I love it. Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. I I could probably listen to Howlin' Wolf for the rest of my life and never get tired of it because, as Sam Phillips of Sun Records said, this is where the soul of man never dies. And he is the wolf, and I, I love him dearly. Um, for new stuff, there's a guy, there's a song that I heard by a guy named Lewis, and that's his only moniker. And the song, go and look it up, it's called My Own Good. It's almost, it's, it's, it's what I call a girl song. But it's a great girl song. There are great girl songs. Um, I don't want to offend any little ladies out there. There are some great girl songs, and this is one of them. It's the best girl song I've heard in 20 years. My own good, it's called. Lock me up, throw away the key forever. album freak show revenge that's lewis l-o-u-i-s and the song my own good recommended by gene mccaffrey wise guy baseball gene thanks very much for that recommendation another cool tune and thanks so much for joining us here today on baseball hq radio wise guy baseball is available now and you can get a hold of gene at wiseguybaseball.com to place your order and gene may i say it's a must read for anyone who plays fantasy baseball and enjoys a good laugh well, thank you very much, Patrick. And I want to—I want to uh, tip my hat to you too. You, you did a great study on the on the keeper league, um, the value of prospects last year. I know it's in contradiction to what I'm saying about this year being the year of the prospect, um, but it was great work and it's true work. And I just think that this particular year is a year when it's going to go the other way a little bit.
prospects are going to be a little more impactful. Uh, once again, Gene, thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again during the year, I'm sure, and I'll see you at Tote Wars. Okay, Patrick, thank you. All right. Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Our uh, regular commentaries come up next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shao kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. Get out! Get out! It's Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the new HQ Alternatives feature. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about San Diego left-handed pitcher Robbie Erlin. The San Diego Padres' Robbie Erlin continues to fly under the radar. The 22-year-old lefty is not overpowering or physically imposing. At 5'11", 190, Erlin's fastball sits at 90-92 to and tops out at 93 miles an hour. But he does have good secondary offerings that includes a plus changeup and a pretty good 12-6 curveball. Where Erlin really thrives is in his ability to throw strikes. He can hit all four quadrants of the strike zone and has an advanced understanding of how to set up hitters. While Erlin does not jump out at you physically, he has been one of the most effective pitchers in the minors over the last several seasons, and it's hard to argue with the results. Since being drafted in the third round of the 09 draft, Erlin has a career line of a 2.64 ERA with 50 walks and 368 strikeouts and a 1.00 whip. So 50 walks in four years of action and more than 10 strikeouts per nine. Erlin was on the verge of making his major league debut last year when a strained elbow forced him to miss three months of action. He returned to the mound in August and looked just fine in the Arizona Fall League where he posted a 2.82 ERA. Robbie Erlin should contend for a rotation spot with the Padres this spring and is worth rostering in all NL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge lots of ways, including comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney report and update the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. Here in the preseason, the coverage continues with in-depth organizational reports, the recent Top 100 Prospects list, and right now on the site, the HQ100 Roundtable Discussion, with Jeremy, Rob, Colby, Chris, and Brent Hershey discussing their choices for the Top 100. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now our new feature, HQ Alternatives, with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking about alternative formats and alternative strategies. This week, Matt discusses the player pool for pitchers in sim drafts. Many simulation formats are in draft mode this time of year. Spring training hasn't started, neither have a lot of the roto drafts. But if you're a simulation manager, this is the time of year you look back at last year's rookies and decide which are the ones you want to add to your team, because, again, they're based on last year's statistics. This week, we thought we'd take a look at the player pool of pitchers in most simulation drafts. And here we're going to assume basically 30 innings pitched to be eligible. We're going to assume about a 20-team league. To give you an idea of what's out there in the draft pool, it's a very deep pool of pitchers this year, even at the top. 
You have some excellent cards out there. You, Darvish, Matt Moore, and Jared Parker should all perform very well, especially Darvish and Parker. The difference here long-term is that Parker is really not as dominant in the strikeout area as Darvish and Moore. So if you're playing for this year, Parker probably rates higher than Moore. If you're playing for long-term, you'd probably draft Moore with his higher dominance instead of Parker. Yu Darvish overall has been about the fourth pick on average in most of his drafts. So he sort of sets the tone a little bit ahead because he's higher uh, in rankings both for this season and the future. The other thing is that in simulation formats, Darvish being a right-hander is often an advantage because many teams can pick low-at-bat guys, smaller sample size, who then happen to crush left-handed pitchers in the few at-bats they have, and therefore they can gang up and put a lineup of lefty killers who you may not suspect from their names, but their small sample sizes yield skewed cards that you can take advantage of. So lefties in simulation are often a little weaker than right-handers, so that also gives Darvish a nod over Matt Moore. If you look at the second-half performances, Darvish and Moore also look much better for the future. Then you have a pretty big drop-off to the end of the first round when you get Wade Miley, a lefty. And this is a guy who's more of a control pitcher, not a great future, uh, usable statistics for the current year. But really, Miley's not someone that you, uh, being the left-hander, not being dominant, really only if you need the innings would you take Miley there. Instead, you're better off taking the upside of a Matt Harvey, who's got excellent dominance. He goes usually right after Miley in most leagues. But we would take him beforehand because he's got a much brighter future, not nearly as many innings from 2012, but an excellent card. Relievers always come a dime a dozen, but there's not many closers in this set. Sometimes Fernando Rodney's available in some leagues, but Ryan Cook is sort of the consensus best reliever. If your system has a closer rating, he did close a lot of the time, and he goes sort of at the end of the second round uh, to early second round, depending on your league. Uh, but Cook is the one clear closer if you want a young closer on your team. We feel it's difficult to build on closers because... They're not as consistent year to year, and if a closer is not good against lefties or righties or gives up, you know, has a bad outing, gives up three homers in a game, it can ruin his card for the whole length of the season. So we really don't build on relievers, but if you really need a killer card for this year, Ryan Cook is your answer. Now we sit down to A.J. Griffin. Uh, had a pretty good debut, but you really have to watch his home runs. He gave up a lot of home runs per nine innings. So Griffin, while he has a decent uh, set of statistics for you to build on, he was, did give up the long ball. So if you have a ballpark factor in your game, you want to be careful with A.J. Griffin. Still a decent long-term prospect, but certainly a step below the others that we saw. You also don't want to forget if your league has a very low innings requirement, you have the likes of Dylan Bundy, Shelby Miller, and Trevor Bauer who may be out there in your league, and they should probably be selected for future performance ahead of Griffin and Cook. Then you get into some other left-handers. Wei Yin Chen from the Orioles, very underrated because he's a little bit older. His uh, statistics weren't great, but they were decent. So he's a good full-time starter you can get, usually at the uh, end of the first round or into the second round. Drew Smiley has a much better future as a younger pitcher, but he has half as many innings. So again, if you're playing for the future, I'd take Smiley over Chen. But if you need the cards now, I would take Chen. Michael Fires from Milwaukee probably won't duplicate his dominance that he had in 2012, but he has a nice part-time card for the current year. If you're looking for the future in this area, maybe Tyler Skaggs is a better bet, even though he's left-handed. Tommy Malone is someone whose stats we love. But Malone, his average draft position here, usually in the second round, Malone gives up a lot of home runs as well. So being a left-hander, giving up a lot of home runs are two things that are very difficult. 
if you'd rather have a better card, Erasmo Ramirez is one of the sleepers out there who's got an excellent set of statistics from 2012 for your simulation league. Doesn't have a lot of innings, only 59 innings, but he also has a decent future as well. He's not going to be a dominant strikeout pitcher, but he controls the strike zone, knows how to get ground balls. He's still only 23 years old, so he has a great future ahead of him. The next starting pitcher that people like to take a chance on is Dan Straley from Oakland. He had a great dominance in the minors last year. Didn't translate quite as well to the majors, and generally people don't think he has quite the upside he showed last year in the minors. But certainly someone, that if you want to take a chance on a long-termer, he's a guy that goes in the same area, as is Hisashi Iwakuma. Now, Iwakuma went higher in early drafts because of his statistics, but ballpark factors in some simulation formats have given him a much more... Uh, unfriendly card because he does give up a lot of home runs and he's not really a young guy but he did really have a good second half if you're looking for a flyer at the end of the draft some names that stick out here are drew hutchinson from toronto now he did undergo surgery he's going to be out for 2013 but he's kind of usable uh, as far as his current statistics and he's very young so if it's a long term or you can stash your league he's an option another long shot might be Mark Rogers from Milwaukee this guy's always had great stuff but just can't stay healthy uh, doesn't have a lot of innings for 2012 but if you're late in the draft need to reach and get somebody he's someone who has some upside even though he's 27 years old for the baseball HQ alternative I'm Matt Beagle Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the mistakes he made at the FSTA Experts Draft. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the 2013 Fantasy Sports Trade Association Experts League Draft that took place about two weeks ago. In particular, I want to talk about some mistakes that I made. Drafting out of the number 11 seed in this 13-team draft, I was surprised to find Carlos Gonzalez still available when my first pick came to me. I followed him up in the subsequent rounds with Adrian Beltre, Billy Butler, Cole Hamels, and Yadier Molina. I considered this a solid core, albeit not without some risk. Cargo has had injury concerns, as has Beltre in the past. And while I had stockpiled about 100 home runs and about 2,000 at-bats worth of 300 hitters, I knew that I was falling behind in stolen bases. The truth is, speed sources are plentiful late in most drafts, so long as you're willing to take one-dimensional players or batting average risks. However, with my solid BA after five rounds, I wasn't really worried if I had to pick some 250 hitting speedsters later on. Now... Not sure if I was overconfident at that point or, or just didn't like the players on my draft list at that spot, but my picks in rounds 6 and 7 were, well, they were out of character and, and potentially damaging. In round 6, I should have grabbed Michael Bourne. He was there for the taking. He would have been a perfect fit for my speed-starved club, but I guess I was skittish about rostering an unsigned player. Instead, I took Nick Markakis, which... Is not a horrible pick, but didn't offer what I needed and was a bit of a reach that early. When Bourne was grabbed later that round, along with other speedsters, Elvin Andres, Austin Jackson, Desmond Jennings, I started scanning furiously for some speed. Now, I said I really wasn't worried about speed. That There is one thing, however, that I was worried about, and something that everyone should be worried about this year, and that is the second-base talent pool. 
Up to that point in the draft, there were six second basemen off the board. Robinson Cano, Dustin Pedroia, Ian Kinsler, Ben Zobrist, Brandon Phillips, and Aaron Hill. The talent starts to drop off sharply at that point. But there was one prime plum still out there that I was sure would make it back to me in round seven. Not only would he take care of my second base slot, but he'd also provide a bunch of speed. As the picks kept getting closer and closer, I was ready to roster Jose Altuve. As anyone who's ever played in the snake draft knows, you can never count on anything and you should always have contingency plans. It was a rookie mistake for me, and it was costly. Rotowire's Chris Liss, who had the last pick before mine, grabbed Altuve just as, just as I was about to ink in the Astros infielder. What's worse, I was not prepared with a backup pick. I guess you might say I panicked. Officially, I've gone on record and called it uh, a hiccup. So, in my worst reach of the draft, I rostered Chase Utley in the seventh round. Subconsciously, I must have thought it was 2009. I probably thought it was 2009 for my Marcakis pick as well. Well, these two picks were clear mistakes, but I'm not going to fret over them much. Worse would have been grabbing the wrong players in the early rounds. I was able to roster a bunch of stolen bases later on with, with players like Alcides Escobar and Ben Revere. Second base will be a problem spot all year, as it probably will be for a lot of teams. But the free agent pool can be pretty plentiful in a 13-team league. The lesson is simple. Mistakes are going to happen. Get over it. Regroup. It's a long season. For all you know, they won't be mistakes at all. Heck, all it will take is a little bit of health for Chase Utley to taste his prior successes again. Once you display a skill, you own it, as we say. And 34 is not that old, right? Rationalizing is so easy in February. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler's weekly fanalytics column appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about a five-year futures draft. It's a really interesting concept. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. Let people know about it. I also want to thank our guest today, starting with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Always great talking with Gene about baseball and about music. I also want to take a moment to thank the many volunteers all around the globe who develop and maintain the free open source Audacity audio software program. We use Audacity here at Baseball HQ Radio to produce our show, and we've just upgraded to Audacity 2.0.3, which has a bunch of enhancements. We've also upgraded our MP3 encoder. We think it's important to bring you the best audio quality we can, and the folks at Audacity make it possible. I also should thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our League Watch analysts this week, Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our minor league analyst, Rob Gordon, Matt Beagle with the HQ Alternative segment, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher, Ron Chandler. 
Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at possibly misvalued catchers. Greg Ambrosius has a free column about NFBC and the lessons from the recent FSTA Experts Draft. Jeremy Deloney has his deep prospect sleepers, guys outside the top 100. Plus, we have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have part two of a research piece on the effects of park changes in Seattle and San Diego on the site now. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with best-selling author and Grantland.com baseball writer Jonah Carey on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>